Well, good morning, church. Great to see you, be with you, and to uh, uh, today be back at the Crown Point campus. I was last week at our Cedar Lake campus and really enjoyed um, time with brothers and sisters there, and God's doing some really neat things there. I think I'm going to blame somebody there for handing on a germ to me that has caused a very bad week of health for me, and you'll notice my accoutrements that I have here with me. Uh, we'll see how it goes this morning. But uh, delighted to get back into God's Word, get back into Romans. I trust you enjoyed Dr. White from Cedarville University last week, and uh, it's great to have him with us. But now it's just me. The most common question that I receive as a pastor, particularly from people that are new or wondering you know, who we are and what we believe, is I get a qu this question, do you believe that you can lose your salvation? In many circles, this is a kind of litmus test to you know, whether you're orthodox or not. And so I, 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 I get asked that oftentimes, and the vast majority of the people that are asking that, I think given the broader pond that we're in, in Christianity, are hoping very much that I will say, no, you cannot lose your salvation. But there are some denominations that believe that you can. The Roman Catholic Church believes that you can. And uh, this is something, you know, good people can have a thoughtful debate about. Uh, but you wonder, how do you, you know, come to a position on this? Do, you, do the people on the one side, you know, list all the verses, their favorite verses, and the people on the other side list all their favorite verses, and then we see who has the most verses, and they win? Uh, or do we, you know... Uh, see who screams the loudest about it, or has the most likes on social media about it. Here is one point of agreement that everybody can have. We all should sorrow over somebody who at one time in their life professed faith in Christ, but today does not. As an example of this, a very prominent one over this last year, a a uh, very well-known pastor and author did just that. A, a man by the name of Joshua Harris, who uh, skyrocketed to uh, fame back in the 90s, he wrote a book called I Kiss Dating Goodbye. Did any of you read that and as a result, kiss dating goodbye? And the single people raised their hands. Uh, so you maybe know his name, you maybe recognize the book, uh, from that, he was like 20 when he wrote it, New York Times bestseller, and he became the pastor of a megachurch in the Washington, D.C. area, wrote other books, some of which I read and I frankly liked very much. So by the time he's 30, he's got this huge following, this huge church. Well, this past summer, uh, Joshua Harris announced he was divorcing his wife, leaving Christianity altogether. And he seems to not even believe in God, much less the gospel. He calls it his deconversion. So here's my question. If nothing changes for Joshua Harris, and he died today or whenever he dies, will Joshua Harris go to heaven? Now, I'm going to leave that final determination to God, but this is hardly an unimportant issue, particularly in so many churches and so many uh, homes where you have 
very nominal Christianity at best, and oftentimes people who at some time in their life, maybe even enthusiastically, profess faith in Jesus and were all about uh, it, and today, you know, it, it hardly shows up on their emotional Richter scale at all. They have little interest, maybe they'll come to church occasionally, but it's not really important in their life. Is that what saving faith is? Is that saving faith? How do we know who's saved and who's not? Here's a version of this question that I receive often. They'll say, Pastor, do you believe in eternal security? And I honestly cringe when I'm asked that question. And the reason I do is that, because my official answer is yes, okay? Just to be clear, my official answer is yes. But I'm pretty sure that what I think, or what I believe by that, is not what the vast majority of people uh, are thinking when they ask me that question. Your eternal security is not the same as my eternal security, or what I think the Bible teaches about uh, this answer. Because there's a way that you can believe in eternal security that is, that is assuring and is wonderful and is a treasured truth. And there's another way you can believe in it uh, and apply it that will eternally secure you in hell. And that's a different kind of eternal security. I, I'd never have anybody ask me about that kind. But it's true. Now, why are we talking about this? Well, we're talking about this because we're doing this series in Romans, and we're here in Romans 11. And uh, in this chapter, Paul uses an illustration. It's his most famous illustration in the book of Romans that seems to indicate that you can lose your salvation. The illustration itself. Now, what does that mean? Here's the text. Romans 11, verse 16. If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Now this is an illustration. Two Sundays ago, we spent time really kind of taking this apart. But basically, this is the illustration. Paul has been talking from Romans 9 uh, through chapter 11 about the relationship between the, the descendants of Abraham, the Israelites, the Jews, and Gentile believers. And here now in, in Romans 11, he gets to this illustration and he says, you know what it's like? It's like an olive tree. Now this was the most common form of wood back in the day and to this day you, there's olive trees and olive, olive carvings and olive wood everywhere in the Middle East. So everybody understood an olive tree. He says, it's like an olive tree. The roots of the olive tree are the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and the promises that God gave to them. The tree are all those descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. These are the people of God. He goes on to describe those branches that came off of that tree as the, those that are descended from Abraham, but who do not have the faith of Abraham. And that God comes and breaks off those branches and casts them aside. 
They are, they are ethnically in the people of God, but they are not spiritually in the people of God, and he casts them aside. And he says, you want to know what the Gentiles are like? The Gentiles are like God going into the back 40. Now, I mentioned this the other day, and, and people, there was people going, what's the back 40, okay? It's the woods behind your house. It's that back area that, you know, nobody goes to. But God goes back into the back 40, and he finds a wild olive tree. Not a cultivated one, but a wild one. If you look at the, 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 the trees behind your house, if you have those, they're not beautiful like the garden center. They're all gnarly and turning. And, you know, he goes back to the, 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 the wild olive tree and he takes a branch from the wild olive tree and he goes now to the cultivated tree and he carefully grafts into that tree the wild olive shoot, the wild olive branch. And he says, you Gentiles, you're like that, right? You don't, you don't, deserve to be there. You're not naturally there. You're not a descendant of Abraham, but God in his grace and mercy places us into the tree of the people of God. Therefore, don't become proud. Don't become haughty. Don't become entitled. That is what the, what the Jews did. And the result of that is that God broke off their branches. They had patriarch DNA, but not patriarch faith. They didn't believe, and God broke their branches off. So, the result of that is that all that are in the tree are there by the grace of God. None of us deserve it. None of us have earned it. It is the grace of God giving us a place in the people of God. That's the illustration. Now, we're going to continue today. Look at verse 20, because here now we get into this like, you know, wait a second. What's up with these other branches? And are they part of the people of God? Are they saved? Did they, were they saved and they lost their salvation? What's going on here? Look at verse 20. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut from what by nature is a wild olive tree and grafted, contrary to nature, into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? All right. Now, you're likely confused right now. And my job is to try to bring some clarity to this. You've read it perhaps for the first time. I've spent a lot of time in this. And let me try to explain it. I think it's most helpful to begin with the last two verses because these are the clearer ones. <clears throat> and they're easier to understand. So again, and even they, okay, this is the Jews whose branches were broken off because of pride and an entitlement. They weren't believing. If they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. You want to know what this is saying? What, what it's saying is this, is that, yes, God will break off branches and will cast them aside. But that does not mean that God doesn't have the power to take those branches, now apparently dead branches, and to graft them back in again. We look at the branches like that, and we think, oh, there's no hope for them. God's already made his judgment. You know, hell is theirs. That's it. But wait, we're talking about God here. God has the power. And so we say, well, even if I'm a broken off branch, in this case, a descendant of Abraham, I'm a Jew who hasn't believed, I'm, I'm, I'm cast aside, 
Does this mean that there's no hope for me? No. Well, what's the condition? It's the same condition for anybody who's going to be grafted into that tree. You must believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. You must believe that he is indeed the Messiah of God. And when the cast-off branch trusts God by his power and by his grace, can graft them in again. And the point that Paul makes here is, listen, if God can graft the wild olive Gentile sprout into the cultivated tree, a tree that we don't, you know, by DNA belong in, how much more can God take a branch that is a descendant of Abraham that is supposed to fit here? Like, they fit better than we, in a sense, is what he's saying. God can put them back in again and give them the gift of eternal life. They are compatible. We are not. But God's power does it. Such is the grace and the power and the forgiveness of God. Okay? So, where's the encouragement in that? Here's the encouragement. Whether you're a Jew or not, if you're the prodigal, and you're out there, and you think, God can never save me, Even branches God broke off by his own will and intent, he will graft back in. How much more any of us that come to him in humility and repentance and faith in Jesus, will he graft us back in again? I just think about, we have so many families in our church with the the prodigal son, the prodigal daughter, the prodigal grandkid or whatever it is. It's been years, and you've been praying and praying and praying, and you're like, maybe there's no hope for this branch ever to get into the people of God. Paul's encouragement is, we're talking about God here, and the power of God can do it. He can do it. So you keep praying for that prodigal. And if you're the prodigal here today, by the way, you think the church walls are going to fall in, just the fact that you walked in this church building today, it's talking about you. That means that God can graft any of us in if we will repent and believe and trust in Christ salvation is offered to all of us regardless of where the wild olive branch or the or the the cultivated branch broken off it doesn't matter such is the grace and the power and the forgiveness of God and somebody forgive me for doing that I have nowhere to put it now what about verse 20 Okay, now let's get into the, the, the uh, as they say, the nitty-gritty here in this issue. Look again at verse 20. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Again, who are the natural branches? Ethnic Jews who did not believe in Jesus. Okay, that is not to say they didn't have faith, because they certainly did have faith. The issue was, and we've learned this throughout Romans, their faith was placed in the wrong place. They were trusting the fact that they have a DNA connection to Abraham. They were trusting the fact that they were fastidiously obeying the Old Testament law. They were not trusting in Christ and his work on the cross for their salvation. All these attempts at righteousness, what did it breed in them? It bred pride and it bred entitlement. And that is why verse 21 says, so do not become proud, but fear. What was the sin? It was essentially presumption. I deserve my place in the people of God. I deserve God's 
kindness and favor towards me. I am a descendant of Abraham. I have the Old Testament prom, uh, promises. Now, what is the problem with that? Can you see this with me? It is exactly the opposite of what grace is, right? Grace doesn't look at my place in the tree and the people of God and go, you know what? God got this one right. I deserve to be here. No. Grace is fundamentally a sense that I do not deserve to be here, and yet I'm there anyway. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a person who deserved it anyway. No, a wretch like me. And you can always tell the people that get the gospel because there is this, there's this tone, there's this posture towards life and, and faith and church where I understand I, I deserve the opposite of what I've gotten. And we never get over the grace of God. Presumption is self-salvation. It's self-righteousness. And when God sees that, no matter if you're a Jew or not, that person trying to be in the people of God, he comes up, he, bam, breaks it off. Spiritual presumption comes in many forms. I'm in with God because I'm blank. You can fill in the blank there. Better than most people I know improving Protestant, Catholic, Baptist, Methodist, Presbyterian, should I go on? I'm whatever, I've got this ethnicity, I've got this heritage. When I have presumption and I think I deserve my place in the, in the, in the people of God, God comes and he breaks off the branch and cast us aside because we do not get the grace of God. And this is Paul's concern that the Gentiles would fall into the same trap that the Jews did. And so to counter that, he gives three admonitions in this text, probably three that, that we don't hear very often. Here's the first one, fear. Look at verse 20. So do not become proud. Do not become presumptuous. Do not become entitled. How do we fight that sense? We fear. Now, fear seems very unchristian, doesn't it? I mean, didn't Jesus say, after all, fear not? It's the most repeated phrase of Jesus in all of the Bible. Yes, indeed. But what kind of fear are we talking about here? Is this trembling fear? No, this is a kind of wonder, a reverent wonder that we must maintain in our lives that God would save somebody like me. You get a group of people together who have lost their sense of the grace of God to save somebody like them, and that's a church you're going to find all kinds of problems in. Pride and all the things that flow from that. This is why Paul writes elsewhere, therefore let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Fear. Now, is this what I say to the person who comes up to me and says, hey, do you believe in eternal security? Because I prayed a prayer when I was five and I think like I'm good with God. How often do we, <clears throat> would I say, no, I don't believe that? Not that often, but maybe I should and say, you know what? You should fear. Are you asking me whether your eternal security also includes fear, a sense of wonder and awe that God would save somebody like you? That's the sense here. Number one, we should fear. He goes on another step. 
often unheard of in evangelical churches. Look at verse 22, that we are to think soberly about the kindness and the severity of God. Here is the text. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen. These would be the branches that have been broken off. But God's kindness to you provided you continue in his kindness. The kindness and the severity of God. These two qualities of God that act as a kind of counterbalances, even though they are not contradictory in the character of God, they are beautifully balanced, beautifully uh, uh, positioned, if that's the right way to talk about God. The kindness of God is the grace of God, the love of God, the mercy of God. The severity of God is his judgment, his holiness, and his justice. And we look at what God did going to that tree in the illustration and seeing a branch that presumed that it deserved to be there, and you see him going, is that the kindness of God? No, that's the severity of God. The lexicon includes the word harshness, the harshness of God. When was the last time you heard a song about the harshness of God? We don't tend to sing about that, we don't tend to talk about that, and we certainly don't tend uh, unfortunately, many places to not preach about that. In fact, what do we do? This is one of the great failures, I think, in Western Christianity is that we pick and choose the qualities of God that we like. We love the love of God. Let's talk about the love of God. Let's sing about the love of God. And you know what? There's a ton to celebrate about the love of God, for sure. How about the grace of God? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. I quoted it already. The kindness of God. These are the things about God that we just naturally love. And so we, we, it's so easy to pick and choose the ones that we like and to ignore the ones that we don't like, which is what Paul is bringing up here. Think about the kindness and the severity of God. We end up with this kind of weird, distorted Picasso deity where we, you know, he's not, he's not proportionate. He is not as he's presented in the Bible. He is just the God that we want him to be. And what a dangerous thing that is. Because if you only think of the love of God, void of the wrath of God, you will never believe in the penal substitution of Jesus on the cross. Amen. Never. And you end up in universalism because if God's a God of love, everybody has to end up in heaven anyway. So we don't, we don't want the wrath of God, we just focus on the love of God. And you see how it leads you into this wacky theology. At the same time, there are some people who focus entirely on the sternness of God. Apart from love and grace. Their churches are ones in which people are not allowed to smile. There's no grace in the church. There's no grace in their homes because there's no grace in their God. He is all severity, which is also a distortion. And friends, you see in this the beauty of God? Do you see this proportionate balance in the person of God where he is love? And praise God that he is love. And praise God that he is mercy and kindness. But he is also presented in the Bible fully as wrath and judgment and holy and just. Now, why are these both so critical? Let me give you an example. 
Perhaps you're here today and you're all about the love and the grace of God. You love the love and grace of God. You'll talk about the love and the grace of God, so much so that you quietly allow it to excuse sin in your life. And you say, oh, God's all grace anyway, so he doesn't care, why should I? What should somebody like that be carefully considering? The sternness of God, the severity of God, the harshness of God. Or perhaps you're here today and your conscience is constantly plaguing you. No matter what you do, you still have something inside going, sinner. You've done everything you can to ease your conscience, but nothing's working. What what do you need? You need to think about the kindness of God, his grace and his mercy to the sinner. The words of Jesus come unto me, all who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. And do you see how both are necessary? Because God is both, but God is exactly what we need, no matter where we are in our walk and our journey. Consider carefully the kindness of God. His anger should make us serious, and his love should make us joyous. So think often of his severity and his kindness. Okay, so fear, number one. Two, consider his severity and his kindness. Three, and this is the key one for the question I raised at the beginning of the message, is continue. Continue. Again, verse 22, note then the kindness and severity of God, severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, notice, provided you continue in his kindness. This is, I think, where the grafting illustration is very helpful for us because uh, God's promise is to keep us saved, okay? So if we go back, to the, if we go back to, the, to the branch, to the tree here, how do we know which branches are in the end saved and which ones are not? Okay, let's identify. The branches that are broken off that are never grafted back in, they are not saved. The, the wild olive tree in the back 40 that is never grafted into the tree, not saved, clearly. The only branches that are saved are those who are in the tree and who remain in the tree. Do we agree with that? Okay. Staying in the tree is what Paul calls here continuing in his kindness, verse 22. And the broader doctrine here is called by the theologians the perseverance of the saints. Can you say that with me? Perseverance of the saints. What is the perseverance of the saints? Here's one of our trusted theologians giving us a very good definition. The perseverance of the saints means that all those who are truly born again, I got the definition up here if you put it up, please. We were supposed to have it up. There it is. Okay, I'll read it. The perseverance of the saints means that all those who are truly born again will be kept by God's power and will persevere as Christians until the end of their lives. And that only those who persevere until the end have been truly born again. Do we get up there yet? No? Okay. It is helpful to see it, I think. Because in the definition, there are the two key concepts that I want you to get today. And the first one is, is that we are kept saved by the power of God. This is known as preservation. God preserves us in our salvation. But what does that look like? It looks like perseverance in the faith. Preservation, perseverance. 
Let's talk about both of these. The preserving work of God. Is this not the point of Romans 8 in so many ways? We love Romans 8. Especially you get towards the end and he says, what can separate us from the love of God? Can this or this or this or this or this or this or this? And he says, no, I'm, I'm convinced that there is nothing in all creation that can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And God's people down through the centuries, we read those verses, we love those verses, we treasure those verses, and praise God, they are true. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. You might remember this, Romans 8, verse 30, and those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. We talked about the golden chain of salvation and you might recall, to illustrate it, I had, we, we borrowed this giant chain from the, from the shipping docks up in Burns Harbor, and I had it here on the stage, and I said, oh, okay, the two strongest guys in the church, come on up here. And we couldn't find any. Uh, I'm kidding. <laughs> no, we had two guys come up, one big strong guy, one skinny guy who was uh, posing. But uh, I said, lift the chain, and they struggled to lift the chain. I said, okay, try to break the chain. And it was, it was just a joke, because everybody looking at it, there's no way you could break a chain like that. And that is the sense of Romans 8, verse 30. Praise God that, that you know, he, those he, he predestined, he called and he called, he justified and justified, he glorified. Every one of those links in that golden chain is something God does. He, 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 what was the point? It's all he, not me. All he, not me. That is getting at this point that we are preserved in our salvation, kept there by the power of God. And we should be forever glad. Because let's be honest, if our salvation was somehow dependent upon our own strength, our own you know, persevering, we wouldn't last till Tuesday in our faith. Our flesh is that strong, and the temptations of the world are that strong, and the vain philosophies and teaching of the world are that convincing. We would easily walk off that path and go off in some direction if it was simply left to us. How do we stay saved? We stay saved by the power of God, by his Holy Spirit dwelling within us, the seal within us that we will make it to the end. We cannot preserve ourselves. Only God can do it. So I can't say that any harder. There's enough in Romans to build that whole doctrine, much less the rest of the, of the Bible and the New Testament in particular. Okay, so the preserving work of God, how are we kept saved? By God. But what does that look like? If God is promising that he will, he will begin the good work and you will carry it on to completion, Philippians 1.6, what does it look like actually in the life of a Christian who is being kept by the power of God? And this is what the theologians call the perseverance of the saints. Or what Paul says here in Romans 11, we continue in his kindness. We continue, we, we persevere. The word there in the Greek means to remain. Okay, so how do these fit together? I want you to see this. Our perseverance is completely dependent upon the promises of God and God's power active in our life to keep us saved. We express that by continuing in the faith. Does this mean that we do not sin? No. Does this mean that we don't have really hard desert times in our spiritual life? No. But what it does mean is that we will not deconvert. We will not forsake 
our Lord Jesus Christ. We will not deny the faith. It means that God's work in us, by his grace, we will continue to believe, trust, and follow Jesus until the day we die. So, what happens then if we don't? What happens if we deconvert? What happens if we repudiate our faith in Jesus and go off in a different path? What do we say about somebody who at one time claimed to believe in Jesus, but now is off in some other faith or direction in their life? Well, here now is the nub of the issue. There are certain people that look at that person and they say, ah, they have lost their salvation. They were not kept by the power of God. Perhaps God's power wasn't strong enough to keep them saved. And I'll say to you, there are some fine people that take that position. In fact, one of the key spiritual persons in my whole life believes that. But we look at that and we say, well, wait a second. God made all these promises, so many, that he will keep us saved. And Jesus said he'll never lose a single one of his sheep. And, you know, I, uh, John 10, my, I'm, I, you know, my, they're in my hand, and no one can pluck them out of my hand. And my father is greater than me, greater than all, no one can pluck them out of his hand. It's kind of like we're, we're in the hands of powerful hands of God. We're kept saved like this. You know, how do, what if somebody, boop, they jump out? What do we say about that? And again, there are some people, they say, well, look at there's somebody who lost their salvation. I look at that and I say, it's really hard to explain it that way when there are so, prom- so many promises for those that are truly regenerate that they will be kept by the power of God. And that is why we believe it is far more biblical and better to see the person who walks away from the faith as someone who was never truly regenerate in the first place. They were never actually in the grace of God in the first place. In the parable of the soils is a great example. These are people who The seed of the gospel falls on them. They respond to it. They even respond joyously and enthusiastically to it. But over time, that faith is choked out by the worries and concerns of the world. Here's what John says. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. There's that idea again. But they went out that it might become plain become plain that they were not all of us. Let me illustrate it this way. I think years ago I, I shared this illustration. I, got, I don't have one better, so I'll just do it again. Uh, but many years ago, I, um, in a very foolish decision, decided to run the Indy Mini Marathon. Okay? This is the one they run uh, corresponding to the Indy 500. And, uh, I, you know, I, I love sports, I like to work out, but just, I, I'm, just, to, just to run miles upon end is just not my, that's not my thing so much. So, but I decided to do it, you know, it's one of those things you do, and I'm sure most of you probably have. And uh, <laughs> so I decided to run the Indy Mini Marathon. If you didn't know, this is, I, I didn't check the stats, but at the time, I believe it was the largest half marathon uh, in the country, if not the world. I mean, it's like 40, 50,000 runners. It's this huge deal. And uh, the way they do this is that you, in the application, uh, as I recall, you, you have to kind of give them an idea of what kind of runner you are, okay? 
how fast you think you might do it because they, they basically place you at the starting line uh, in a kind of order where the, the professionals are at the front. These are the guys that are running for money. They're trying to break the records and, and uh, they're mostly Kenyans uh, at the front. <laughs> And then you move back, 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 and finally you get to normal people like me who just the big goal is to finish, right? All I care about, don't care about the time, I just want to finish. So if, you, uh, if you're aware of this race, and I don't know if they still do this or, or not, but back then there was a group of guys who every year, um, you know, they would, they would do the same thing. And uh, I can't verify this, but I believe that they were up uh, at a bar most of the night before the race. And uh, in the morning, they would, they, would, they would sign up for the race, but they would uh, weasel their way to the front. You know, I don't know how, because I mean, I was like a half mile behind the starting line when I started this race. So these guys, somehow, they get all the way to the front, and, and they're there, and they're ready. This is their big moment. So the gun goes off to start the mini marathon, and these five or six guys, who've been drinking most of the night, take off at, they're sprinting, just as fast as they can run. They run at the beginning of the race. And off they go, leading the race. Now what do you suppose happens? 50, 60 yards into the race, they start decelerating rapidly when the Kenyans are accelerating very rapidly and they blow past these guys. And once that happens, they stop and they go back to the bar and <laughs> brag to their friends that, you know, for a little while they were leading the largest mini marathon in the world. <laughs> Somebody could verify whether these guys do this uh, to this day or not, I don't know. So what's the point? Well, here's the point. If you're gonna, where do you go to determine who the actual marathon runners are in a race? Can you go to the starting line and sort of look around and say, ah, there's a runner. Well, there's some indications. Maybe that would be helpful. Um, the Kenyan flag being one of them. Uh, there's a runner, uh, but you, you don't really know. You don't even know the first couple miles who actually are marathon runners. Now you're starting to get a little better idea of the further the race goes. Where do you go if you want to know who the actual marathon runners are? Not the starting line, but the finish line. You go to the finish line. Because no matter how nice their shoes are and their outfit and how much they appear to be marathon runners, the only way you know who the actual marathon runners are those that cross the finish line. And in my years of ministry, I will tell you that I have seen a lot of those sprinters in the early part of the race. They respond to the gospel. They have amazing, they're just so excited. I baptize many people who, to my eye, are never finishing their spiritual race. They responded. They made profession. But how do you know? in the end, who is actually saved. And that is those who, as Paul says here, continue in his kindness. Kept by the power of God, but persevering 
to the end. Real marathon runners finish the race. Real Christians persevere. So how do we know who's saved and who isn't? In a certain ultimate sense, we don't. We don't know. We won't know until that race is finished for them. How can I know that I'm saved? Well, here's one way. The longer I'm living my life grafted into the tree, the more miles I have behind me where it seemed like I was in general following Jesus, the longer I go and the closer that finish line comes and I see God's transforming work in my life and the only explanation for me continuing in this commitment that I made 30 years ago is that God is at work in my heart and my life, the greater my confidence that indeed I am under the grace of God, that I have been born again, that I am regenerate. Is that eternal security? Yes, if properly understood what is meant by eternal security. Do you see how that phrase is so reductionistic and can be so dangerous when you assure people at the beginning of the race, ah, no worries, you're good, you don't even have to run, just lay there. God just carries you across the finish line. That's not what Paul says here, does he? What does he say? Fear, fear. Consider the kindness and the severity of God and allow the warnings to be one of the things that spur you on in the race and keep you from walking off of the, of the path. The word of God is like, you know, the runners, and they, they, you know, they, the, the, is, is water along the way to refresh us. You know what the church is? It's essentially a running club where we all get together and we, you know, hey, how's it going? And how was your training this week? And you're running along, keep going. There's something about running with other people, I'm told, that is <laughs> helpful to be encouraged. And I hope your experience here at Bethel Church is like, man, I, I, I feel encouraged when I'm there. It keeps me, you know, another week, I'm gonna, I'm gonna stay faithful to Jesus. And when we think about quitting, we should consider the eternal consequences of the wrath of God. When we think we are unworthy, we should dwell deeply on the kindness of God. Both of those are needed to get us across the finish line. So I just want to ask today, where are you in this story? Maybe you're here today and you're like, I honestly haven't even started the race. I would urge you to consider the offer of the gospel that all who trust and believe in Jesus Christ will be saved forever. Amen. Put your hope and your confidence in what Jesus did dying on the cross for your sins. Become a follower of Jesus like the rest of us here and begin the race. Confident that God will keep you to the end. Maybe you're here today and you're, you're kind of those guys at the beginning that I was telling the story. You're sort of a pretender, okay? For so long, you've gone through the motions of being a Christian. You don't even know what it means to not go through the motions of being a Christian other than the fact that you know in the 
recesses of your heart, this is a charade for you. Can I just carefully and lovingly say, your charade will be unveiled by the holiness and the wrath of God. And I would urge you, I don't care how long your family has thought that you actually were a Christian, I would urge you to throw yourself at the mercy of God. Get baptized, shock your whole family. Who cares what they think? Care what God thinks. So quit pretending. If you're here today and you're spiritually weary and you're wondering, I don't know if I can make the finish line. I'm not sure I can make Wednesday this week. I want to say to you, take heart. You are kept in the race by the power of God who guarantees that all who begin in faith will continue in faith and will finally step across that finish line. And I hope very much to see all of you there.